Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. 15 years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio open source. And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Stonewall, 50 years ago, is a marker in modern memory. More nearly a million markers in conflicting memories. The Rashomon effect rules. No two eyewitnesses saw the same event. Did the pitched battle in a mob-run gay bar in Manhattan between fed-up patrons and city cops really happen? Were women, black, and Latino militants in the forefront? Over the last half century, have any two people experienced the same sexual revolution? And was the point of it all inclusion? To normalize formerly forbidden behavior through gay marriage, for example, or was it disruption and liberation to radicalize our thinking about sex, gender, and society across the board? The arguments are still out there, and they're not all in New York. We're digging up the Stonewall years in New England this hour with people who lived those years in Ranger Boston. Gary Bailey, Sue Katz, Michael Bronsky, You'll get us started, please. Sue Katz is a wordsmith who writes novels and stories, now mainly about sexual rebels in senior housing. Gary Bailey is an African-American man who teaches social work at Simmons College. Michael Bronsky is professor in the field of women, gender, and sexuality at Harvard. I'm going to ask you sooner or later, Michael, when do we put straight guys in that, under that microscope? But Sue, you've seen it all. Remind us of your battles going back to the fights with mainline feminism in the early 70s. Well, we're talking the women's liberation movement in Boston exploded in 68, 69, and 70. It was an astounding flowering of women's liberation. Do we know why? It was happening. Why? Because it was uh, a revelation to half the world uh, uh, to discover understand sexism and how it had been impacting our lives when each of us had felt individually a failure. When we saw that it was a social phenomenon, we formed a movement, and it was a very uh, new kind of movement, organized, you know, leaderless in collectives and whatnot. Hmm. One of the things that happened is that immediately after Stonewall, women from all different collectives, and the collectives were very intimate groupings, secretly started meeting in a basement and started talking without really saying the word. I think we met for a couple months before someone actually said the word lesbian. And I remember the first time I said the word lesbian in a positive way because (laughs) I had had very bad experiences as a youngster, as a young lesbian, as a teenager in high school. So We all decided that at International Women's Day, which was an annual march since the beginning of the women's movement in Boston, that we would all come out and march together as lesbians. We were coordinating with a group that was going through the exact same process in New York City and another group in L.A. that going through the same process. Someone asked Betty Friedan, who was then, I believe, the president of NOW!, there are rumors that lesbians are going to turn up at all the women's, women's marches this year. Hmm. 
And she said, I will not be cowed by the lavender menace. (laughs) And the result was that we spent the whole night, all of us, dyeing all of our clothes lavender. I mean, the underwear, the shirts, the pants, everything, so that we could turn up the next day at International Women's Day dressed in lavender with signs, lavender menace. Uh, And that was the beginning of the lesbian liberation movement in Boston. Gary, I want you to introduce yourself arriving from Cleveland in the early 70s. I came to Boston from Cleveland to go to attend Tufts University, um, where I arrived here in 1973, uh, an 18, a 17-year-old, um, out, mm. gay, black kid, um, who um, really came to a city where I didn't see myself represented. It's, uh, Boston's a great place. The reputation is wonderful. Tufts was not in Boston. It was in this little place, a little backwater at that time called Medford, Massachusetts. It was not accessible as it is now. It's a very different world now. Um, but coming to an environment and not knowing exactly what out meant, but knowing that I had been accepted for who I was at my prep school um, Mm -hmm. in Ohio um, and being met with, uh, and I remember this and I tell my students this now, that gay kids, other people who I suspected were gay wouldn't hang out with me and straight kids wouldn't hang out with me. So I spent the first year um, pretty much eating alone until I got my sense of self. And so the city became my home. I would get into Boston, get to meet people, and that became my community. And what links did a young man from Cleveland make in in neighbors, in churches, in you make bars? Bars. It was the bar scene. Bar scene was where you went to uh, hang out, to make friends, to get to know people, um, to uh, have a, a sexual encounter that then would end up being friendship so that gay men and uh, at that p- period of time uh, we were finding ourselves sexually um, moving out of the shame and the embarrassment of what it meant to be. We were no longer the clinical term homosexual, which was so boys of the band back in the day because usually that was all the sad young men and all of those mm. awful songs about where you're going to end up um, somewhere um, doing yourself in uh, or something like that um, to being gay and what that meant as an affirmative statement. So it was a great period. Michael Bronsky's new book is A Queer History of the U.S. for Young People. Target audience, you said 9 to 14. Nine to 14 These are kids who, who know the word binary, but they don't know gay history. Almost none of it. Mm. It's quite amazing. Outline the objective, and we're doing it this hour. What What is the forgotten truth of all this? Well, I think part of the trouble is, well, first of all, um, they don't learn it in grammar school. They don't learn it in high school, right? Um, and who's going to tell them gay history? It's not probably not their parents. Maybe a gay aunt or a gay uncle, but they don't learn it at home. And I think part of the, the sort of impetus behind the book was really to to give people a basic approach to how to think about American history through a queer lens, right? So although there are gay and lesbian people in the book, it really sort of is a, a queer analysis of how people from the outside uh, in various positions changed American history. Short course, before and after Stonewall, Michael. Before, uh, about the movement or generally? 
what kids must know. What kids must know. Or ought to know. Or right. will be f- so I, liberated I, to know. I think I will, I'll do it in five quick points. Okay. <laughs> um, homosexuals, uh, gay men, lesbians, gender variant people, queer people have always been oppressed. They've been oppressed by the state, by the church, by policies, by laws. This began to change after World Point two, after World War II, uh, when uh, small groups of people got together, the Mattachine Society and Daughters of Belitis for Lesbians, mm-hmm. 1955. Um, that laid the groundwork for a movement. Um, Stonewall happens in 1969, in which people actually, with the impetus of all the other movements, right, of black power and radical feminism, anti-war movement, drug, sex, and rock and roll, um, as 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 Gary said, right. that you, you that you stopped being a homosexual, and you became gay, um, and that that continued until there was a backlash in 1978-79 with Anita Bryant, right. because what had happened was that gay liberation made such enormous changes throughout the country, people freaked out, mm-hmm. and after that, 1981, AIDS happens, and then it's a whole new ball game after that. Is that five points? I believe that's five points. Ten but, years after Stonewall. The gay novelist and historian Edmund White sampled a variety, the varieties of gay life in places like Kansas City, Memphis, as well as Minneapolis, Los Angeles, and Boston. The book was called States of Desire, and in effect, Boston won the race. Boston in 1979, he wrote, was a talk shop. Still is, of course. But he thought it was a coming center of gay radicalism. Gay men lived in the Back Bay on Beacon Hill and South End. They were not ghettoized, he said. Book clubs, not bars, mm-hmm. <laughs> were the mark of gay life. I'm not sure how many black or female gay people he met, but not could many. that have been possible? A gay Boston as a kind of mecca, as a kind of utopia? Yeah. I mean, just think about what what we do here every fall. We bring in, through our colleges and universities, young people who are leaving home and finding themselves and expressing themselves in ways mm-hmm. that they might not in their little neighborhoods where everybody knows their name. <laughs> uh, so they are able to come to a place where they can be self-expressed. And that has been true f- forever here. I mean, it's something about being able to leave home, and that makes such a huge difference. I so think you're nodding. I, I am because I'm, I'm nodding at both of these uh, important people to my left and right because be, another part of before Stonewall was that it was not only illegal to be right. gay. Uh, I mean, down to it was illegal not to wear three pieces of clothing of your designated gender, um, let wow. alone let alone be in bed with somebody uh, of the same gender, let alone dance right. slow with someone of the same gender, but it was also a mental health disorder. Mm. So that when I was, when I fell in love in, with, uh, with a girl in my class as a junior in high school, when we were caught as seniors, uh, we could have just had the most dire things happen to us. We had pretty dire things happen to us. But it was not uncommon for people to be incarcerated and to get electric shock therapy and all kinds of, of mm. horrors because it was an official mental health right. disorder. So after Stonewall, when we came out of the, you know, and we believed it ourselves in many ways, after Stonewall, when we came out of it and when we formed a movement, there was such a flowering 
of uh, certainly among lesbians of all kinds of lesbian dances, bookstores, uh, music events, uh, lots of, of uh, I was going with a musician at the time, lots of bands uh, with lesbians, lots of literature. I mean, it was a cultural flowering that had just been waiting many, 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 many years. Uh, Michael Bronsky, we won't have time before the break, but I want to hear more about a guy named Charlie Shively that you write about and you must have known well. I never met the guy, but it seems to me he's a profile. He's a almost the representative figure of the intensity and the power and the range of that moment and that time. Sure. We'll come back to it. Uh, we're talking about gay history post-Stonewell outside of New York. A lot of it in Boston. Coming up. The AIDS years of plague and panic, starting in 1981. This is Open Source. The intimate social revolution that is dated from the Stonewall bar fight 50 years ago was one sort of struggle. The outbreak of an insidious viral infection, notably among homosexual men, a disease finally labeled AIDS in 1982, was something entirely different. The death of Rock Hudson rang the general alarm. Hollywood's leading man, with stars like Liz Taylor and Doris Day, outed himself as a lifelong gay man and died of AIDS in 1985. In Boston, Larry Kessler, a Boston shop owner, had been among the first responders to the plague with a telephone hotline that anyone could call for good information in 1983. The hotline was ringing off the wall. We were answering hundreds of calls a day, and some of them were ridiculous. I'll give you an example. Some people would call, and they say, I live in the South End, and there are a lot of gay people in my building. Is it safe for me to use the washer and dryer? Or uh, others who would say, I go to the Y. Can I catch this by using the same shower? So nobody really knew much of what was happening. But by September of 83, there were at least 100 people in Boston who had been diagnosed with having what later became known as AIDS. So as, as a volunteer group, that was our job, was trying to figure out what do they need, how do we get it, how do we train these volunteers, the hotline seemed to be the first thing mm. that would work because it was anonymous. Some people would call at 5.30 at night, and you could tell they were calling from a phone booth on a highway mm. because they were afraid that somebody would hear them asking questions. Mm. So we knew that we had made a good decision. That hotline lasted 25 years. Wow. Larry Kirsten. What made the Boston difference? Boston was already ahead of any other city in the country because no other city had such good support from their state legislature or their city. The difference was when I lobbied the state house, I always took people who were sick with me. That way they got to know real people who were probably from their district and they were, at that point, maybe not as sick as they were going to get later in the year. But them telling their story was profoundly 
important and very, very good because it kept moving. It, that's right, moving. One of those years, we were sitting with the uh, senator who was in charge of Ways and Means, and I took six or seven people with AIDS into the her large office in her office to meet with her. It had to be Pat McGovern from it Lawrence. Was. Lawrence. It was Pat McGovern. And uh, I said, they would like to tell you their story. And they all started talking about what they were up against and what it was like. And she said, listen, I got to check on something. And she left the room. And she didn't come back. And we're sitting there wondering, where did she go? Finally, she did return, and she said, the meeting's over. But Larry, I have to ask you, don't ever do that to me again. And I said, what did I do? She says, you brought these sick people in, and they told me their stories. And I left because I was crying so hard. Mm. And I don't like to cry in front of my constituents. But it helped. It worked. Because she went down the hall and talked to Billy Bulger and told him about the uh, situation that she had just had. And uh, she turned out to be one of those people who we could always count on thereafter. I put it to you, Gary Betty, was there a bigger citizen in Boston in our time than Larry Kessler? Not in my opinion. Um, one of the most humble servant leaders I have ever had the honor of working with. I mm. was the first African-American board chair of a major aid know. service organization wow. and was worked with Larry for six years. And his dedication and commitment to this issue um, was beyond measure. Uh, Larry used to say that his dream uh, his ambition, his mission was one day to turn off the lights and lock the door at AIDS Action because he, we would have found a cure. We would have found a cure for the epidemic. He was not about building something to last forever. It existed because the epidemic existed. It was not an edifice um, or another institution to be created. And that's why our doors are still open. That's why the, the AIDS walk in two weeks, uh, June 5th, um, are still important because people still are getting sick and dying and communities of color, um, gay men and communities of color are overrepresented in the numbers. Count the ways that AIDS and the response, the organization, Michael Bronsky, uh, affected the whole gay history. Sure. I would like to say something just to respond to Gary, or not respond, but mm -hmm. to actually build on. Uh, one of the reasons Larry was so effective was that Larry was an organizer. He was. He was in Catholic Workers. Yeah before he became an AIDS activist. And if you look at the history of the gay movement, the first, uh, Harry Hay, who started Mattachine Society, was a communist. People, uh, the amount of people who came from the anti-war movement, the amount of lesbians that came from lesbian health, right. who, who came from anti-war movements, and that, in fact, what, there, there was a movement a few years ago uh, by Dan Savage, a, a campaign called It Gets Better, mm. which people signed mm -hmm. on to, right, because to help young people think it gets better. And it struck me, it does, but it doesn't get better. We actually have to fight to make, make it, better. it better. No question. Right? Nothing changes by itself. Right. Absolutely. Right. Nothing, Nothing changes by Nothing. itself. You have to demand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that what, what what we saw with Larry, and we saw it in New York to, in in different ways, with, certainly with, with Larry Kramer in New York and mm -hmm. with ACT UP in 87, right, that the – I mean, it's sort of amazing, right, that the backlash to gay liberation begins in 78 right after that. 
1981, right, is the AIDS epidemic. And to many people, or to many people who were on the right wing or the conservative right, um, AIDS was literally the manifestation that gay equals death. Right. You know, it, it actually fulfilled every biblical prophecy right. that they could think of. And it profoundly changed the gay community. It profoundly changed, um, it, it built upon the organizing that we had been doing. Mm. In, in, in deeper more and more profound ways, it also gave people a deeper sense of humanity. I think one of the most amazing things that happened was that um, even though it, it basically affected gay men of all colors, um, the amount of support that lesbians brought to the AIDS phenomenal. movement was phenomenal, phenomenal. particularly phenomenal. because they had actually been badly treated by right. gay men yes. for 20 years. Yes. <laughs> it's even more, yes. more of a... Uh, of an honor to do this. Yeah. I mean, le- in many ways, lesbians ran AIDS groups be- right. and to some degree because they had been professionally trained as healthcare workers, but also because the many gay men were sick and couldn't do right. it. Right. I was, I, was in a, I was in a room once at a fundraiser with Martina Navratilova, mm-hmm. which I badly mangled her name, and where she said similarly that uh, lesbians had shown up and supported gay men she wasn't sure that gay men would have shown up and supported lesbians. And let's think about where have we shown up in the same numbers in the same way around breast cancer Mm -hmm. and other issues that confront um, women uh, and particularly our lesbian sisters. It's not just organizing, but the consciousness raising challenge there is extraordinary. This is pre-Romney care Mm -hmm. and Obamacare. What did we suppose were people's rights to medical care, to drugs, to hospice. Sure. And, and how, how did that get, get clarified, get argued? This, I think this, this profoundly changed um, how we thought about health care, how, yes. how, how we thought about taking care of one another. Yes. Be- because uh, we're not Canada and we're not the UK, we actually do not have national health care. Um, and what it did was that it actually um, allowed people within the community to take care of one another because right. they had to. It allowed lesbians who had health, had healthcare backgrounds to, to move in and, in and do massive amounts of work. Um, it it also um, allowed many gay men and 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 lesbians who were running organizations right to actually learn on their own about what mm-hmm. AIDS was and right. what the drugs were doing. So it actually had this massive sea change in terms of how we understood our health. I mean, I do think one of the major failings of the AIDS activism movement and of the gay, the LGBTQ movement is that during all of this time, no one that I know of actually began to talk about national health care mm. <laughs> or about the government taking some more cohesive role. It was, it was dependent to a large degree upon um, charity in the best possible sense. Right. If, if, Are people helping? Sue Katz, please. Um, I I just want to say that uh, let's remember that during the women's liberation movement, women organized underground while Mm. abortion was still illegal. Women organized uh, uh, collectives which provided, uh, and I'm talking just about citizen health workers, that provided uh, abortions free to women. And that's when it was illegal and when the only people that had access to abortion were people with wealth who could fly somewhere or hire a doctor with sufficient money uh, to get a, you know, an actual safe abortion. Mm-hmm. So there was a sort of a history there of organizing around a health crisis that uh, unfortunately 
uh, we're facing again today. It's also important. It's also important as we think about that period and going back to what Judy just said, to to think about the role that people like Judy Ngozian um, uh, uh, played in with our bodies ourselves. That women were mm-hmm. also at a place where they were having. When we're talking about healthcare, I think sometimes we look at healthcare, and this is through my social work lens. We look at healthcare now thinking about what it could have been without looking at it for what it was. Healthcare was, as advanced as it was, was still fairly siloed and rudimentary in many ways. So that there was not a lot of work being done around women's health. If we think about for uh, queer people, we had to create a Fenway. We had to create our stellar institution. It didn't exist because we weren't getting the care that we needed. And yet the medical world did respond. Larry Kessler was telling me. Um, I also want to take note that this, as well as being a medical capital, is a Catholic mm-hmm. stronghold. I also want to come back to your point, Gary, that um, uh, Stonewall has been whitewashed in mm-hmm. s- to some degree. Mm-hmm. What links were you making as time went on with black struggle and with black politics? Well, it's very important as we talk about what was going on during the civil rights movement. There was a lot of language that was being used that was equating the the uh, the gay rights movement as being exactly the same as the black civil rights movement. And they're not exactly the same. Um, That is not to say that they don't both exist through a lens of oppression. Um, but indeed, the, the major difference here is what also happens when one is oppressed but also benefits from white privilege, um, and particularly white male privilege for numbers of people, which queer people of color don't, don't have access to. Mm-hmm. There's no proximal privilege that comes from being black and, and gay or queer, which is today's term, not yesterday's term. And so when we go back and even think about what that means about the movement, we're now at a place where at least from my assessment, that more and more people forget that it was black and brown people who fought back. You have people who had absolutely nothing to lose, who'd gotten Mm. tired of being tired. And that 50 years ago, it was around police brutality, um, the abuse and the the, uh, disrespect of systems um, that people turned around and fought back against. And so when we think about the mothers of the movement, we think about Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera uh, and Storm Deval- uh, I forgot yeah. Stormy, um, I can't think of De Valera. De Valera. Those are the mothers of the movement. Mm-hmm. It's just been announced today that in, at Stonewall in New York City, they're going to erect a statue uh, honoring Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera. Why? Because in the language of the First Lady of New York City, the movement has been whitewashed. I refer to it as being Cloroxed. Color has been (laughs) removed from the movement. We now think of it as a marketing parade, and we forget that it was a protest march. It was a protest march. Stonewall was a riot. Um, And it's irritating now when you hear people who get upset when Black Lives Matter with all due respect will stop the march for people to be able to listen to concerns of people of color still being harassed by some police um, to say that we're interrupting the march. But that's what the march was about. (laughs) So they don't know their history. I'm just meeting some of those heroines like Shirley Royster, elders of color, uh, a woman who had AIDS herself, but who just... I don't know. Her heart still breaks about the numbers of people that died all around her in in the heart of Boston. You know, if we go back and really think about the trauma 
that was that period. Um, I don't think anyone quite understands what it was like to be afraid to pick up your phone when it rang because Mm -hmm. you knew someone was going to tell you that someone had died. I don't think people really understand what it meant for the shoe to drop for you because you knew that you were with these, you, you were, these were your friends. So right. why is it passing me over? And it is, so you had survivor's guilt in some ways. It was, it was a very horrible time. My youth died. I, you know, I turned 30 during that period. And at that point, my youth died and I have never gotten it back. Mm. It was also, my, excuse me. It was also a contrast because before Stonewall, you know, it wasn't just in New York that there were raids. There were raids Everywhere. all the mm-hmm. time in Boston, all the time. And there were, t- I could tell you, terrible stories about things that happened to us. And funny stories, too, like Jacques, the bar Jacques, where I met sort of every lover mm. I ever had in that period, uh, was run by people that were paying off the cops, mm-hmm. but not always. And when the cops would raid us... Um, they would set off this red light in the bar, bunk, 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 <laughs> and all the lesbians and all the gay men who were dancing with each other would immediately split and get with each other, other. so that, the, that it looked like straight couples when the police would come in. But we lived with terrible fears and the terrible burden of being sick, perverts, illegal, uh, of sneaking into these bars right. in the combat, mm. combat zone uh, in the dark of night. And then came gay liberation, and it was like an explosion of freedom and good feeling, Mm -hmm. and then came AIDS. AIDS. Mm. Michael Bronski, would you tell the Charlie Shively story as as economically as you can? Sure. Uh, Charlie Shively was – he was uh, born on a pig farm in Ohio in a place called Gobbler's Hill – Ended up going to Harvard in 1956. He uh, really was called Gobbler's Hill. I know, it's a great story. <laughs> um, he went to Harvard uh, he, uh, for his BA and then got a PhD. He was the pretty much one of the founders of the first national gay male paper called Fag Rag. Mm-hmm. Um, he... It was a collective, but he held it together. He was the founder of Good Gay Poets, which was a poetry collective, um, and was pretty much one of the leading radical voices. He was an anarchist. He, as, a, as a professor, he was interested in sort of utopian American 19th century history. Um, and he, a celebrant of queer in, in every dimension. In every dimension. He was, he was, uh, he had left Ohio with a vengeance <laughs> and became as queer as he could possibly be in every possible part sounds, of his life. Sounds familiar. On the theory that we were supposed to enjoy all of these prescribed things. I mean, we were meant to. Yes. I I mean, Charlie was famous for a series of articles, which we cannot mention on the radio, that were in fag rag that were essentially, they were all about different acts of revolution that he actually equated with sexual activities. Um, And he... But loving it all was... was well, well, lo- was what? the revolution? It, well, yeah. it really was, yeah. and and actually, loving yourself and loving your body right. was actually the foundation for gay liberation. I mean, unfortunately, Charlie died two years ago of Alzheimer's, mm. um, leaving behind a massive amount of his own writing as well as an archive that's now at Yale University. Wow, it, accessible! You yes, you've written wonderfully about it in the Boston Review, but where else do we locate it? The archive is uh, in uh, the Beinecke Library. It's totally cataloged now. People can go there and look at it. it it's, a, it's a voice like none other in a, in a, in a period that was, was full yeah. of wild voices. Uh, 
we're talking about Stonewall, outside Stonewall. Coming up, the energy of now in a half century of revolution. Fifty years after the Stonewall Uprising, the LGBTQ missions in 2019 seem to center on the T and the Q. T for transgender selves and Q for the choice or destiny to be disruptively different. Stephanie Burt is a trans woman star in the Harvard English Department, a poet herself, and a leading commentator on her contemporaries. She is our authority on the turmoil in T and Q, I asked her to locate the current battles that seem to her most urgent. I'm going to give you a couple answers. Go for it. One is non-binary acceptance. Another is political power holding office, not just asking cis people for things because it's right, but holding office ourselves. Another is... Showing that we're everywhere so that you don't have to move to a certain urban center to live your life. Another is it's not about always passing. It's about getting the world to understand that trans women are women and trans men are men. And having enough trans visibility and culture so that you can have visible trans people with satisfying lives, not just in real life, but represented on screen in comic books as supporting characters in novels in groups doing something other than being the magical source of wonderfulness alone for the cis protagonist. So transcultural visibility in groups as valid people with their own lives in every genre and every medium. And decentering whiteness, a lot of the early accounts of transness mm. have been by and about middle class white people like me and figuring out how to stop and listen and not necessarily silence ourselves, but decenter ourselves and recognize that if you are Arab American and trans, if you're South Asian and trans, your experience is not going to be the same as my experience. Um, and no one experience should be taken as, as standard, if you can possibly avoid that. That is one fascinating list, Stephanie Burt. Thank you, Chris Lydon. Gary Bailey, Sue Katz, Michael Ronsky. Second guess, Stephanie Burt's agenda, if you will. Who wants to leap right in? I mean, prioritizing, where are we now? Where I would agree is the decentering of of whiteness as a as a as a position. But in order to decenter it, was one must also, in the language of Audre Lorde and Adrian Rich, also interrogate it. Um, if you don't go to that place that helps to understand what is this thing called whiteness, you can't decenter it because you haven't done the work. And I don't hear that in, you know, I, I really don't hear that in the, in the language of lots of activists who talk about the, those same sorts of, of things. I would also say, as a clinician of many, many years, that it is very interesting about what it means to want to fit in. Um, most of us, as part of our DNA, it, 
don't necessarily like standing outside of the crowd. You know, it, it, that's why leadership, you know, I do a lot of work in leadership. Leadership is deviant because by definition, you are stepping outside of the safety of the pack um, to be a leader. And I, I think it's important for people to be self-expressed and authentic, but I also understand why, what it means for people to feel that they can fit in and be a part of, of a group as well. I want to ask Sue and Michael, when do we get to, or do we have to interrogate straightness mm-hmm. as a sort of the position of authority? I think the norm. Straightness apparently is kind of a dying phenomenon. Mm. <laughs> not uh, quite, not quite. <laughs> well, the way we well, define it, the way it's been defined, it is. Yes, Meaning and, what? and all, the, all the surveys show that um, straight people are straight, but when they were in high school, they had this experience, or when they were in the army, they had that experience, and... Uh, or they have fantasies that they don't tell anybody. Yeah. Or they don't feel that they fit in in the most traditional ways. And so this, the category of what queer represents, at least as I understand how it's different from the word that I knew when I was a kid, which was othered and bad and awful, is that it is accepting and expansive and includes people who are not part of the mainstream. There are more people who might say, yes, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm not a same-gender-loving person. That's not where my primary relationships are, but I'm still queer in the ways in which I exist in the world. Right. I think the other thing is, and I, I completely agree with most of Steph's points, I would elaborate on some others, um, that uh, the project of decentering, the project of becoming more inclusive or of what we might call intersectionality now, right, is, is very difficult for the gay movement because from the very beginning, mm. the gay movement, with although people actually fought back against this, the gay movement has essentially been a very white middle class movement. Right. And that is very difficult to actually fight because there's, there's a 70-year history since 1950 of it being dominated by, by white middle class people and white middle class ideologies. Right. Here's another agenda. The first openly gay attorney general in the 50 states is Maura Healey of Massachusetts. In conversation this week, she was noting make gay marriage as a homegrown reform that did this state proud. I asked her what is the next mountain to be scaled. We've got a president who believes that discrimination is okay. And it seems that every other week the White House is announcing a new rollback of civil rights protections. Last week, for example, the Trump administration proposed a rule which would roll back the Affordable Care Act's protection against discrimination for transgender patients. Earlier last week, the Trump administration finalized a rule that would allow health providers, emergency room docs, ambulance drivers, pharmacists, and the like to refuse to provide medically necessary care to a transgender person based on their religious or moral objection. So we're going to challenge these proposed rules in court, of course, and the good news is I've been working with a lot of other state AGs, and we've had success holding the line. Remember, it was our office that joined with others and fought the ban on service of transgender members in the military. So we're going to continue to be there in court. That was Maura Healy in the Attorney General's office. Again, Michael Bronsky, Sue Katz, Gary Bailey. Um, The tension runs through the whole history and the whole conversation between 
wanting to be assimilated, wanting to be inside mm. the pack, and wanting liberation and outside, a kind of queer assertion. Mm-hmm. Where are we in that evolution, Sukats? Well, the work that I'm doing now um, is around LGBTQ elders and our particular needs and our particular circumstances. And one of the things that we're facing that is really difficult for all of us, but particularly for those of us that continue to identify as revolutionaries, is that we're being forced back into the closet. Mm. And the reason so? the, the reason is that, that uh, we have a much, much higher, my generation, the founder's generation, the pioneer's generation, we have a much higher uh, percentage of not having children. That's 90% of us. 34% of us live alone as compared to 23% of the general population. But even more, many of us are excluded from our bio families. I have no relationship with my bio family because when I came out as a kid, it, it, I mean, when I was caught as a kid, it was, it was a nightmare. And so I have no relationship with my family. I live alone. Uh, many, many older gay people do not have partners Many of us are reluctant to go to senior centers that don't sort of cater mm. for us, don't have events for us, don't recognize us or see uh, see us. Uh, so there's a lot of social isolation. What happens is when you need care, let's say you're having a home help come in, that home help may have a real objection to gay people. So the result is you're back to doing what you did before Stonewall, which is taking the posters off the wall, um, you know, hiding all the evidence, your books, you're covering them up. You're terrified that you're going to be found out and therefore receive bad care. Mm-hmm. And when you have to go into a nursing home or into a hospital, uh, you're really, really terrified that they're going to know that you're gay and you're going to be mistreated. Mm-hmm. So you go back into the closet, and it's a phenomenon that we're going to have to fight all over again. How is the very idea, the very word queer, uh, evolving? Is an abiding queer community a reality or not? Sure. Michael. I, think, I mean, I think it's interesting, right, because as, as, as like Gary indicated before, queer was used as a slur before someone – it was reclaimed in the 90s by people um, – as as a positive identity, right? I think that the that the reality of, of the word queer that it's actually expanded so much now. So I actually have plenty of students who call themselves at at my job at Harvard who call themselves queer, who um, I don't know what their lives are like, but they've taken on the term to mean that they're slightly different. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think that that queer has been an an, an expanding term. Um, which has not expanded at the rate that the queer community has actually grown. It's a much bigger term than the community that we would think ourselves to be in now. Um, and that, you know, we maybe have to come up with a new term to actually think about the queer, queer people versus the people who right. say that they're queer in right. general. And and I would disagree with you that it was the 90s because in our very mm. first collective, mm-hmm. which was a collective of working class dykes, one of the girls took the name of Kathy Queer. And right. that's in Lavender Vision, which, uh, you know, she appears, she's one of the writers uh, which was when? What 1970. year? 1970. Mm. So it's, it's it's the way in which so many groups take words that have been used in ways that words can hurt. Words can hurt very badly, and the ways in which 
people as part of their healing, uh, moving through the trauma, reclaim the words and take back the power of those words. And it's we're in an interesting place now of looking at some of the intergenerational, and that's true in so many places. We're in a place where generations are getting ready to shift in interesting ways. And for those of us who grew up hearing a word that still at least, let me speak for me, can have, I can have a little bit of a hiccup because that word usually meant duck, um, to now hearing the word and um, appreciating it when it's used by other people who are younger than me, but asking them to also appreciate that I might not catch up. Look, look at the rising consciousness of young people in and out of movements. What do you see happening and what's your what's your... What's your? I don't want to say advice, but what's your, um, what's your experience for them? Kids in high school, much more open in certain ways, much more help available. Well, but what think, do they need to know? Well, but think about what they've grown up with. They've grown up with representations of a certain degree of normalcy. You know, boys, they're they're they have not had the boys in the band moment where to look at gay people is to say, oh, I don't want to be that. If that's what that kind of a party looks like, who wants that? You know, they've got um, so many different shows where the the gay character, the queer character is not an add-on. They're central. So they're represented in some ways that allows them to then express themselves earlier not without challenges and complications, because being young is really hard. Being a teenager is really hard work. But they get to do it with some role models mm-hmm. that many of us, and I don't want to go poor me, I had to walk to school with a hole in my shoe, carrying my books through the rain, over the hills and dales, I didn't. Um, but I do think that it's important for those of us who went through what we went through to be able to look at young people who have a different Hmm. may appear to have less to have to carry to celebrate that. Michael Bronski, what are your Harvard students asking? What are they interested in? It's interesting. I think they're interested in a whole range of things. They're interested in um, non-binary identity. They're interested in in queerness. They're interested, uh, because they're 19 and 22, in a lot of sex, (laughs) right? Um, They've grown up, you know, so they're, they're, they're young people. They're they they've come to accept that gay that same sex marriage exists, mm, um, and they're not know. particularly very interested in it right. yet. I, I was speaking to a student last year, and I said, "So he he was a freshman." I said, "He was eighteen, nineteen. I said, "Do you want to get married later?" He said, "Oh, I don't know." I said, "I guess my mother wants me to," <laughs> and, and I said, well, "Would you want to have children?" He said, "Oh no, I'm only eighteen. I can't even think about that." Right, so the advances that for, mm-hmm. that for people in the 30s or 40s seem like, oh, this is wonderful. We can now get married. We can now have. We can now adopt. Or we can have children. Um, for younger people, it's a given, and they're not, as far as I can see, it's something that they expect that they might do, but they aren't that interested in. It. They're they're more interested in actually exploring who they are. What's the affirmation? What's the affirmation coming from the history teacher and the caution? You know, I think, I mean, we talked earlier about the tension between liberation and assimilation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is true in any, you know, I mean, the reality is that Martin Luther King was not happy with the Black right, Panthers and right. they were not happy with him, right. but you needed both to move ahead. For anything to happen. But, you know, you really, it, because it's actually called a movement, right. <laughs> and right. for movement you need tension. Right. Um, you know, I think what we're seeing at this moment in the sort of now moment that you mentioned, right, is that we're seeing... Um, 
not a clash between liberation and assimilation, but we're seeing assimilation being presumed and liberation moving us a little bit more forward right. mm. with, with, with young people really breaking boundaries that many of us had not really thought of right. were possible but 30 there, years there, ago. There are, young pe- there are young people who aren't in, in Boston colleges right. who live right. in all kinds right. of places in America who aren't feeling it. Right. They are scared. They are bullied. They are in trouble. They are queer in the worst way. And we have to remember that what we experience in like progressive urban centers Mm, is not the experience of of all young people. And we could speak to that from Cleveland and Pittsburgh and what our experience was. That's one thing. The other thing is that queer is supposed to be all inclusive, but I'm in a group with young Butches, and the group is called the Bay State Butch Club. (laughs) And I'm in a group. I'm the elder, obviously. And uh, they're mostly in their 20s, some in their 30s, many of them in their first relationship and whatnot. And they feel quite erased by the queer movement and want to assert a mm-hmm. traditional mm-hmm. butch femme kind of identity, which is an identity that I found as I traveled the world everywhere, especially the more repressed right. the, the gay community, uh, the more prominent among lesbians, the butch femme phenomenon, which is a specifically lesbian phenomenon. So some people are fighting to reclaim kind of the life we Is that an endangered with. species, though, the butch femme? No. 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 That's the point. It's yeah. not. No. No, and I think as we as we look at assimilation, it makes sense that the pendulum will swing back in another way to embrace the same way fashion cycle back through mm-hmm. generations, so do mores and ways of expression. And so it's just it's fascinating to watch all of it. It's fascinating and there's so many questions left, especially uh, who speaks for the working class kids and the kids from from um, out there that we haven't heard historically and even today but that's this hour thank you sue katz and gary bailey and michael bronski thanks also to larry kessler stephanie burt and attorney general maura healy we had lots of help on this one from tim mccarthy susan moyer adam fitzgerald grace sterling stowell shirley royster and russ lopez and mark crone at the history project which has a terrific archive of boston queer history. Our show this week was produced by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, the artist Susan Coyne, George Hicks is our, our engineer, Mary McGrath is our executive producer. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.